When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Au revoir. Sayonara. Bye-bye. That's the word of the day. It's three words of the day. No, it's one word of the day in three languages. Nothing personal. Au revoir. As in Todd Gurley. He's a player if you don't know him. It's okay. There are people listening to Nothing Personal and watching who may not know Todd Gurley. Um, How about $60 million over four years signed in 2018? How about all of a sudden two years later, released by the Rams. How about the fact that he was almost going to be a Super Bowl-winning, MVP-like, Hall of Fame guy, and then he turned 25 as though he were old, and the Rams ended up releasing him, and then he signed with the Atlanta Falcons, who now, given what's going on in their division, with Tom Brady joining, unlikely that... He's going to win anything. Why did this happen? Why is it that the Rams would sign a guy? How do you sign a player for $60 million over four years and then release him, not even two years later, and your name is not David Sampson and you don't work in baseball for the Marlins? How can you be that bad with players in long-term deals? Does that mean there's more than me? That means it's not just me. There's other People associated with organizations who sign bad contracts? Yes, there are. But there's one thing the Rams did in the NFL that we would never do in baseball. Unless, of course, you're the Boston Red Sox or the Detroit Tigers. What do the Boston Red Sox and Chris Sale, the Detroit Tigers and Miguel Cabrera, and the Rams... And Todd Gurley, I'm having a brain moment now. The Los Angeles Rams, I was thinking St. Louis Rams, I don't know why. I was thinking Georgia and Carol Rosenblum, I don't know why, because they certainly don't own the Rams anymore. And I'm almost positive that Kurt Warner doesn't play on the St. Louis Rams anymore. And I know there's two teams in L.A., so it's the Los Angeles Rams. And that's even without Coca, who at the end of this week, and it's been a very stressful week here at Nothing Personal, Coke and I have had four arguments. He's got a migraine currently. He wants the show to be four and a half minutes, not 45, because to him that'll feel like 45. He wants to go home, get into the fetal position, and start sucking his thumb under the bed for the next two weeks. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. But I do know that he did not say in my ear it's the Los Angeles Rams. So the Los Angeles Rams and Todd Gurley, what do they all three have in common? They signed players of their own 
two extensions before it was necessary to sign those players to extensions, which means those players were not eligible to leave the team when they signed those extensions, as opposed to Tom Brady with the Buccaneers, who was eligible to leave the Patriots when he signed with the Buccaneers. No, that's not the case with Gurley. He was signed to a long-term deal by the Rams after three years only as part of his rookie deal, three years into his rookie deal, which can last four or five years. What would be the purpose of signing him to an extension? The Rams have made a habit of this. They have four or five players who they signed to long-term deals before they needed to, and they're paying the price. The Detroit Tigers gave Miguel Cabrera $200 million plus years before they needed to, and they've been paying the price for years now, and there's still years left. And this is Miggy. I have a ring on my finger in large part to Miguel Cabrera when he was a teenager. But that doesn't mean that you have to let emotion get in the way. That doesn't mean you have to forget your evaluations and get super excited about the players you have in front of you. That's what the Red Sox did with Chris Sale. They were so excited to have him that they they really basically bowed to public pressure and to their own evaluation and said, we're going to sign him to a five-year extension now, a year before they needed to. What's the mentality that goes into that and how do you protect against it? That's a topic that interests me very much. Front offices make the mistake of signing players too early for two reasons. It's either emotion or delusion. And those are two things you never want to use when you are building a team or spending OPM, other people's money. That's a great movie with Danny DeVito if you've never seen it. It's called Other People's Money. The reason why you don't want to be emotional is that what you do is you tend to sign players around you who make you feel really good about what they're doing on the field at that particular moment, and you believe that they will continue to make you feel that good for many more moments to come. In the dictionary, take a look at Jared Goff. Now, if you don't know who that is, he's the guy in the dictionary just to the left of Ryan Gosling. Put them right next to each other. Jared Goff, Ryan Gosling. Put it up there, Coca. If we had on YouTube right now or wherever you're watching this, if we had a picture of Jared Goff and Ryan Gosling, you would be shocked at how much those two guys look alike. So, have a good season with Goff, go to the Super Bowl, you're feeling good about yourself, you sign him to an outrageous contract, you put your all your chips in the middle, and you realize, wow, we're just not as good a team. The Rams, therefore, suffer. So that's the emotion of it. You feel really good about what's going on now. The delusional part of it is when you think that that feeling is a feeling that can never end. And here's how you stay away as an executive to all delusional feelings. Never make a decision about any contract, ever, within 30 minutes of the completion of a game or within 30 days of an interaction with that player on the field where he has done something completely unexpected. Let me explain that. When you've got a player you bring up and you have high hopes for that player, and you believe that this player could be someone you scouted, someone you signed. It doesn't have to be a high draft pick or a low draft pick. It can actually be a player out of nowhere. But you see that they're progressing, and all of a sudden your team is doing things, and you are the talk of the town. The Rams were the talk of the league, the young head coach, the young quarterback, the young running back, 
They were the offense, the West Coast, Mid-Coast, Midwest Coast, great offense, scoring, defense, everything about them. Everyone wanted to be the Rams. As a general manager, as a team president, you start believing that. You start thinking, wow, is it possible that we were actually wrong about these guys and that they're better than we thought? Is it possible that we were right that they were really good, but we were wrong about how much above average they were in relation to other players in our league? These are conversations we have internally in front offices all the time. When we are reevaluating our players on a game-to-game basis, we will not change course. Two, two rules. One, don't send out a player or trade a player or release a player 30 minutes after a game, ever. Don't make a decision because when a pitcher blows a save or a hitter strikes out with man on third, no outs, and doesn't drive the runner in, and you're so angry because you think you should have won that game, you'd have a tendency to release that player or to be angry with that player. Don't be emotional for 30 minutes. The 30-day rule is when your team is performing in a way you did not expect, you've got to let that go 30 days, which means I am spending a month thinking about what was wrong with the way that I evaluated the team to start with that would make me change how I'm going to evaluate the team going forward other than current performance. That's the important part of this philosophy. You have to take current performance out of the mix because too often in baseball, too often in football, you can get swept up by current performance, and that will change the plan you had over the year, two, three, or five-year period. The Rams paid a price. Did they ever? By the way, Todd Gurley, did you see his tweet? I think he watches the show. He tweeted right after being released by the Rams. It's business. Nothing personal. Thank you for the shout-out. So you want to talk to Samson. Thank you. Please follow me at David P. Samson. You've been great during this time of quarantine. You've been great with the DMs. They're coming in fast. The topics are interesting. And uh, I like talking about them. And sometimes I'll answer quickly when I get DMs. Sometimes I don't get to it. Sometimes I'll just put the question in the show and then not answer the question on Twitter. But I appreciate the follow and spreading the word here at Nothing Personal. Uh, You guys are paying attention, and I appreciate it. I really do. I don't take you for granted. The question came, and it was a fun one for me. Why do players always lose in conflicts with the coach or front office? And this was a question about a Detroit Lions player named Darius Slay, who's a very good player for the Lions, who was traded to the Eagles because he and his coach, Matt Patricia, had a problem. Matt Patricia is a coach who came from the New England Patriots. Matt Patricia was the defensive coordinator for the New England Patriots. There's something called the coaching tree. You're aware of that, meaning it's like a family tree for coaches that if you're somehow in the presence of a championship coach or manager, then you will go on to be a great coach or manager. It happens in every sport. And some of the coaches have unbelievable trees. Bill Parcells, Bill Walsh had a tree, Parcells. Belichick now has his own tree. Belichick, who is in Bill Parcells' tree, by the way, now has his own tree. I guess that means that in a way, Matt Patricia is somehow first cousins once removed from the Bill Parcells tree. 
I'll get back to you next week, whether it's first cousin once removed or second cousin. People get very confused by that. I think I'm right. I think it's first cousin once removed. Matt Patricia, defensive coordinator, Patriots. Rings galore. Not enough to fit on the hand. They need a thumb. Another thumb. Matt Patricia goes to the Lions. Has a decent first year, 6-10. and 10. His second year goes 2-0-1 to start the season, thinking Super Bowl. Super Bowl aspirations. People in the Motor City are going crazy. We've got a dynasty on our hands following the Matt Millen paper bag era. Matt Millen, who, by the way, was a great football player, which just shows that like someone like John Elway, you can be a great football player. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be great at running a team. So Matt Millen, bags come off. Matt Patricia, a few years later, becomes the head coach. They're 2-0-1. Everything's great in the Motor City. They finished the season 3-12-1. That means they went 1-12 and following their 2-0-1 start. I spoke to Pete Prisco about this, and he's walking by right now, and I can confirm that Pete Prisco would tell me, you know him, he's the really amazing NFL guy. He's about 6-2, sculpted 195, perfect hairline. That's our Pete Prisco. Yeah. He would tell you that going 1-12 is probably not good enough to save a coach's job. But here we are in the offseason following a 9-22 and start to a coaching career, and Matt Patricia's getting the right to trade Darius Slight? Well, the reason is, and here's the answer to your question, players always lose in conflicts with the coach of the front office because as a front office guy, I want to get rid of players first. Then if that doesn't work, I move on to coaches. If that doesn't work, I move on to GMs. And then I stop because it can never be me as a president. I'm never going to go to the owner and say I should be fired. You think that Reed Ryan of the Houston Astros went to Jim Crane this offseason? Hey, I'm the president. I think that I should become a consultant. I don't think I should be president anymore. You really think that's what happened? Jim Crane thought he could get away from the sign stealing and all the crazy scandals that were going on by just cutting off the head of the president. Literally, figuratively, not literally, of course. Obzi. Obzi. I might say obviously. I said obzi. Obzvi? I think it's OBS. I'm trying to learn all the language of all the young people who are texting because they text in code. Uh, this is a true story. I had a general counsel with the Marlins. I just thought of this. He sent me a text. This is 10 years ago when texting first started. And he sent me something and then said, LOL. And I got concerned about that because this was my general counsel and I liked him and he was a friend, but he really was someone who worked with me, for me and with me, mostly with me. So I didn't waste any time because I don't let things fester. And I went to him and I said, hey, Prisco, we were just talking about you. Prisco's walking by looking handsome as a devil. I'm telling a story having nothing to do with you people. You just walked by. Okay, so I go into my general counsel's office and I say to him, I'm sorry to say this to you. What did you mean when you sent me this text that had LOL on it? And he looked at me and he said, what do you mean? I said, you put LOL here. I've never seen that before. What does that mean? And he said, it means laugh out loud. And I said, wow. I thought it meant lots of love. I thought that my general counsel was sending me a text and signing it with lots of love. And I like the guy. I may even like him a lot. But 
I really don't love him. And I didn't want him to love me. I wanted him to respect me and work with me and for me. But when I realized it was laugh out loud, I said, my God, I need a glossary. So one of the words in the glossary was OBS or OBVS, which means obs, which means obviously. So obviously, it's going to happen that a president, can you imagine I can always land the plane, Coca? Does that make you smile? Does that make you smile? <laughs> he said, obviously, you better be moving on. The point is simple. As a front office guy, I'm obviously going to blame everyone I can until it's my turn. I'm never going to tell the owner that I'm the one who wanted these contracts signed or I'm the one who wanted to run the team a certain way because I want to keep my job. I put my trust in the coach, just like Matt Patricia has the trust put in him at the Lions. He is going to win every argument over a player, except if he has one more season that they underperform, they'll have to move past the players to the coach. So who do you blame in Boston? Blame game. That's what we do in sports and in business, right? Who that? You know what? I don't like that. It's not a great way to live your life that you're looking to blame someone for all of your misfortune. Everyone is to be blamed when your sports team doesn't do well. It's the owner. He's a cheapskate. It's the player. He's overpaid and he stinks. That coach doesn't know diddly. Are you telling me that he passed the ball on fourth and one when he could have given it to Richard Sherman? Fire him. It's so easy to blame someone else. You mean our... Reports for our company, our earnings are down, our revenue's down. Oh my God, I blame the CEO. I blame the salespeople. Sometimes it's just life and there's no one to blame. But most times you can blame someone. So who do we blame in the Boston Red Sox Chris Sales situation? Now, what situation you're asking me? That's a very good question. It's the situation that has the Boston Red Sox trading Mookie Betts and David Price to the Los Angeles Dodgers, having J.D. Martinez opt into their contract, signing an extension, the aforementioned extension earlier on in this show, and I'm taking the 93% retention rate out for a stroll right now, assuming you were listening to the beginning when we talked about Chris Sale and his extensions, how it was too early. Well, he's now got $145 million coming over five years, and he's having Tommy John. And if you are a nothing personal fan and you're new to the show, go back and listen to the March 7th show. On March 7th, we said, hey, the flexor strain means he's having Tommy John. The Red Sox were delusional, trying conservative treatment, having him sit for 10 to 14 days. It was laughable. He was always having Tommy John. He can go get an eighth opinion. It's still Tommy John. And what doesn't change is the fact that the Red Sox have to pay him five years. What doesn't change is the fact that he will be pitching at 31, 32, 33 as he recovers from Tommy John and maybe gets back to full strength. The reality is the Red Sox future is bleaker than it should be. Now, they're not paralyzed the way a team like the Marlins would be when we would sign a guy. Like, let's pretend we would ever sign a pitcher to like an $80 million deal over five years. I mean, we would never do that. That would be insane. Let's assume that we would sign a pitcher to that. I mean, we would never do that. You'd have to be insane to do that. And let's say that that, let's say that, that pitcher doesn't perform well. Let's say that that pitcher uh, is hurt or just can't pitch. 
the Marlins would be in trouble. They'd have to then trade away good players in order to make up for the fact that they're paying a bad or injured player. The Red Sox would never be in that position. They would never have to act that way. Oh, oh my God. Yes, they do. They are acting that way. They were forced to make that trade to stay under the luxury tax threshold. They were forced to trade Mookie Betts when they didn't want to. They were forced to trade David Price because they needed someone to try to take some of David Price's money because they signed Chris Sale before they had to. Now what are they going to do? They're going to have a window where they're going to have to spend more money to overcome the fact that their rotation has Nathan Avaldi. You heard me talk about it yesterday. They were the beneficiary of the ML Beer Challenge. The point is the Red Sox have an opportunity, but the Red Sox at the top of the salary cap luxury tax threshold are acting like teams at the bottom, and that's why the union is so angry about the competitive tax and the luxury tax, because teams at the bottom aren't going to spend a lot of money, and teams at the top, when they're close to that level, are going to try to get below it and not spend a lot of money. Now you're stuck with teams in the middle to spend money on players, and the union knows that teams in the middle with very few exceptions aren't going to do it because in baseball, it's better to stink or be great. Being in the middle does nothing. Now, there's some outlying teams every year like the White Sox, who we'll get to talk about tomorrow or Monday in the beer challenge because they did something as a middle team to try to be great, but those are the exceptions. So there's a lot that goes on when injuries happen to players. There's a lot of conversations with the union, with the commissioner's office, between agents and presidents, and these conversations revolve around behavior and the behavior of owners and presidents and GMs and why they do the things they do and what makes them decide to give extensions to players early. What makes them decide when they're going to close their window and trade players or open their window and sign players. The psychology of those decisions is always discussed at the front office level. It is actually very fascinating to me. Chris Sale has a problem. Okay, do I have time for the Tom Werner story? Do you want me to go right to blind date? Going to blind date. I really want to tell a Tom Werner story. I'm going to tell a story on Nothing Personal sometime next week about Tom Werner and his failed bid to become commissioner. He is one of the co-owners of the Red Sox, so it would have fit with the Chris Sale story. But I want to get to this first, because in this era of quarantine, I watched a movie recently that is the perfect, the single most perfect quarantine movie there is. It's called Love is Blind on Netflix. No, I'm just kidding. I already reviewed that. It's called Blind Date. Blind Date is a French movie that was suggested to me by the least romantic, youngest, least smart movie guy I've ever known. It was recommended to me by a guy who puts bad boys ahead of Parasite and puts the franchise of John Wick as the greatest movie series franchise of all time. On the other hand, he's someone who told me to watch Lovesick, which is a series I've reviewed that I love and suggest to you, and he gave me this movie. Matthew Koch, I'm calling you out, my friend and producer. Well, just my producer. I'm calling you out to say that Blind Date, while it's in French, is the best movie you will watch during quarantine. It's about two people who meet Not only is it a blind date, they are separated by a wall. They live in two different apartments. They sit against the wall, and they talk to each other in French. 
but there's English subtitles, so you can figure out what they're saying. Si vous ne parlez pas français, si vous parlez français, c'est pas de problème, mais sinon, il y a anglais. You have an opportunity to read English and enjoy this movie. Can you fall in love with someone? Forget love is blind. Blind date. Can you fall in love with someone during this quarantine period? Can you knock on your neighbor's wall and not get an FU in return? Can you find a way to possibly come together with people when you can't see them? Or when you're both under stress? Or when there's a level of anxiety that's growing and building? It's exactly what we're all going through. Everybody is anxious. Everyone is nervous. Everyone is questioning what's tomorrow, what's coming around the corner. Nothing is guaranteed. We get that. We know it's a new normal that is building, that's changing. We know there's a calibration. The movie for you to watch is called Blind Date. It will teach you that sometimes a brick wall, a piano, and a guy who's a tiny bit eccentric, and a woman who once in a while lets her hair down, can turn into a movie that is simply perfect. Blind Date. Check it out. If I compliment Adam Silver again, even one more time, is there any concern that you are going to have, that anyone's going to have, that I have something going on with Adam Silver, like on, under the table, that somehow on nothing personal, I'm going to make sure that I stay away from Adam Silver, never say anything bad? Or is it possible that he just keeps doing everything right? I had someone who contacted me and said, you're all over all the commissioners and players and owners about PR. You're decoding what they're saying, what they're not saying, what they should be saying. You're so helpful to us. And by the way, you've downloaded, you're rating, you're reviewing. Thank you for the five stars. Keep doing that, please. And keep asking questions when you review because I'll do a bonus pod at the end of March. Please do all those things. I appreciate it. Your loyalty, I don't take it for granted. But I have nothing with Adam Silver. He just keeps doing things right. He announced today another initiative that the NBA is doing. Coca, does it start today at 3 o'clock? It starts today with Kevin Love, which means you may have seen it. Across all NBA social platforms, they are getting a live player named Love to interact with their fans on social media. And it's not some of these other sort of players from any sport who are just showing their everyday life or 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 tweeting or Instagramming or whatever they're doing. This is actually going to be an interaction with fans across social media platforms. What a brilliant way to take advantage of a quarantine where athletes, we have the hardest time convincing athletes to engage with players. They'll sign autographs sometimes. They'll take selfies and photos sometimes. But getting players to actually, actually interact a conversation, a little nugget into their thinking, a little example of what makes them normal. During this time, with this quarantine, don't we want anything that could be a little normal? Isn't it nice to see, I sent out a, a tweet today of some groceries, and the response I got was hilarious. Someone actually said, wow, um, you eat peanuts? Yeah. And that's a lot of garbage bags you got. Um, yeah, of course, I'm just like you. And celebrities are just like me who are just like you. 
We're all the same people. There's an expression we had in baseball. Don't edit this out, Coca. The expression is, everyone squats to pee, meaning we're all the same. But during this time, isn't it cool to know that Kevin Love and other NBA players will interact with you? And how did this work? Adam Silver called the union, and then the union called on its players, and then team presidents, GMs, and other players called on other players, and together they agreed that a different NBA player every day will interact at 3 p.m. I think it's 3 p.m. Eastern with the fans. Showing classic games is great. Talking about things we can do from a charitable perspective is critical. But when it comes to continuing to engage with your fan base and doing everything you can to both distract and entertain people during this crazy time, when you are a business, this is how your business will recover when everything gets back to the new normal. This is how your business, as a matter of fact, what's really cool, and if we were able to show it, I would, but that's a technological ability that I don't have. Kevin Love is currently live. And it's 3.04.53 right now, according to the clock. It's 3.04.57 right now, according to the clock. It is 3.05, and Kevin Love is live. I was waiting for 3.05 because I wanted to rhyme. Rhyme, I wanted the, I wanted the alliteration. It's 3.05, alive with love. Who's doing it with him? Allie LaForce. Doesn't really matter who's doing it with him. The reality is that Kevin Love is being normal. And that's what hopefully he's announcing his $100,000 that he gave. And hopefully we're showing a little bit of, hey, what's it like to be Kevin Love? Because you know what? He's self-quarantined just like the other players. And they're losing their minds just like you are. They're figuring out things they can do. I want to do a shout out to uh, a, a friend, Josh Gad, the guy who plays Olaf, the guy who is in the internship with Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson from Book of Mormon. We've talked about him. Uh, he is doing every day, live on Instagram and Twitter, he is reading a children's book to your children to give you a break because you're quarantined with your children. So people are finding ways. Without cutting a song to the Imagine by John Lennon, without doing that, and it's a very fine line. I don't know if you've read about this or read it or heard it or seen it, but a bunch of celebrities got together, including some really good ones, and it was led by... Gal Gadot, that as in waiting for Gadot, Gal Gadot, and it had Mark Ruffalo, it had James Mardson, who was in with Patrick Dempsey, Mr. McDreamy, Dr. McDreamy, and Amy Adams, who was also in it. Uh, they were in Enchantment together, one of my favorite movies. Listen to that soundtrack all the time. They recorded a song where they were singing Imagine. Imagine all the people. That one, the end of the Killing Fields. Yeah, that one. They're getting hammered, and I don't mean with Tito's, hammered. I don't like that. They tried. They were doing something. Josh Gad tried something, and it's working, and he's getting lauded. He should get lauded. He's reading books to your children. I get it that maybe you want celebrities giving money. Not all celebrities are charitable. Maybe they're more charitable than they think. The ultimate charity, by the way, is not what I'm doing in the ML Beer Challenge. The ML Beer Challenge, where I am giving away $100,000, that is not the greatest form of charity. The greatest form of charity, and it's called tzedakah in Hebrew, the greatest form of charity is when no one knows, when you don't tell a soul. When I would have been giving away $1,000 per day to all the 30 teams, and then $70,000 to local South Florida 
institutions and foundations who can help people in need. If I had kept quiet, and listen, maybe at 5 million followers, I would have thought about it. Maybe if I didn't have an ego, I would have thought about it. Maybe if I were more pure and a better person, I would have thought about it. The second best level, though, and I'm taking credit for that, is what I'm doing. The third best level is everything's tied for third. So I get that we need to redistribute money. And I'm not talking socialism. I'm not talking anything like that. I'm saying we need to give to those who are less fortunate than we are. But what Josh Gad's doing, what other celebrities are doing, what Kevin Love is doing, this stuff matters. So congratulate them, thank them, enjoy their content the way you're enjoying mine. So I gave you a sort of update about the beer challenge. Uh, I want to give you a more full update. If you're watching this, you're beginning to see a tiny bit of salt and pepper. You're definitely, we're past the 5 o'clock shadow. We're into the more, I'd say, the 10 p.m. shadow. And it's just going to start. I'm doing that thing where you put your lip to the top of your teeth so you can see under your chin. Yeah, I've definitely got some gray there. I don't know why that is. By the way, part of my beer challenge, the ML beer challenge, I'm not dying anything what, what grows, grows. I'm not shaving my neck the way Coca did. Coca, by the way, in a rule, he actually went to get a ruling, and we agreed that he can shave under the beard line where the neck is, but he still is growing a beard for the ML Beard Challenge, and he's not going to shave or trim his beard. I'm just letting it grow where it may because I'm lucky enough that it's not very patchy. I think it'll grow in well. I'm just beginning the George Michael phase, so I'm not quite yet into the... Merle Haggard phase. That's going to be a while. Merle Haggard. Did I just say that? I'm not sure who Merle Haggard is. Did I mean Merle and Olson? I'm not sure who I meant. I'm going to have to think about that. ML Beer Challenge, different team every day. We did $1,000 today to the Chicago Cubs. Just the team who needs $1,000. Yeah, I've been saying that about all the teams. Why am I saying they're the team? I'm going to go backwards today, and I'm going to tell you why. First thing, Chicago Cubs have a ton of people around their ballpark. Marlins Park, not a lot of business around Marlins Park. There are some businesses, and they're going to get crushed, but they were getting crushed from the minute they moved in because we just didn't have the crowds, and it didn't yet turn into the neighborhood that I hope it does turn into, that it becomes like a Wrigleyville for Miami. Wrigleyville is the example that is used by all cities in when you are building a public-private ballpark or a privately or publicly financed ballpark where you say the area around this ballpark will turn into a Wrigleyville. Wrigleyville means, if you've never been to Wrigley, that if you walk around if in a one square mile of Wrigley Field, you are going to have unbelievable bars, restaurants, all decked out in Cub stuff. People out there on Waveland Avenue, people everywhere. Shout out to my friend Phil Carniel, who runs one of those establishments, who I know very well when the Cubs don't make the playoffs, gets hurt financially. When the Cubs aren't playing well, gets hurt even more. And when the Cubs aren't playing at all, it's even worse than that. And I feel for those people. So I want the Cubs, the $1,000 to their foundation. It will go not just to the workers at Wrigley. I hope they're going to come up with a program to also help the restaurants, bars, and the people whose jobs and livelihoods have been impacted. We'll wait to see. I think it's going to work. The Cubs are a, um, I guess I would call the Cubs my favorite team. Why, why do you say that? Well, I've got a Cubs story for you. 
It's a pretty good one. My cub story is about a team that, uh, how shall I say this in a way that is completely effective, possibly a little offensive, but beyond reproach because it's completely true. The Cubs are a team that back in 2003 had an aura about them that was 75% cocky and 25% unusually cocky. And the thing about that Cubs team back in 2003 is they had a pitching staff that if I had it, I would feel that cocky too. And the pitching staff consisted of someone named Mark Pryor, someone named Kerry Wood, and someone named Carlos Zambrano were their top three pitchers. The Marlins played the Cubs in the league championship series for the pennant. Everyone was excited in 2003 for the Cubs to play the Red Sox or the Yankees, ideally the Red Sox, in the championship World Series in baseball. Cubs hadn't won in forever. Red Sox hadn't won in forever in 2003. It would have been a dream come true. The Marlins, of course, had won in 97. The Yankees win all the time. So it really was... Baseball hoping for Cubs, Red Sox. And the Cubs had a better team than the Marlins when we played them in the LCS. The Cubs were up three games to one in the LCS. And then we get to a game six. Cubs are leading three games to two. Mark Pryor's on the mound, and we're in trouble. It is unlikely that we can get to Mark Pryor because he's unhittable. But the thing that the Cubs had that we were happy about is they had a manager named Dusty Baker. You may never have heard of him. He used to be a manager in Major League Baseball. He used to be a great player. He managed a bunch of teams, managed the Giants for a while to the World Series, managed the Cubs almost to the World Series, and then he managed the Nationals. They did not win the World Series under him, but they went on to win the World Series. So he's been associated with greatness for a lot of his career. And then he he was done managing, and I don't know that he'll ever manage again. Uh, thank you. Of course he'll manage again, folks. Pay attention. Just because you're quarantined doesn't mean your brain should be turned off. Dusty Baker is the current manager of the Houston Trash Canarios. Canastros. Astros. He's the manager of the Houston Astros, I meant. So he's back in the game. Guess what? That's the best news ever for the other teams. Dusty Baker can't run a pitching staff. In 2003, he couldn't run a pitching staff. He was pitching his pitchers until their arms were going to fall off. Mark Pryor's arm was going to fall off, and we knew it. So we were waiting, waiting, couldn't get a hit, couldn't get a hit, couldn't score a run. one nothing, 2 nothing, 3 nothing. we are in deep trouble. Eighth inning, five outs to us being eliminated. I'm in the clubhouse, in the clubhouse, getting ready to give a speech to the players, thanking them for their work, congratulating them on beating the Giants in the Divisional Series and making it to the LCS, thanking Pudge Rodriguez for his one year of service because we knew we were not resigning him giving everyone a hug because the ride was coming to an end. Mike Redman, the backup catcher, was in the clubhouse, yells at me to get back to my seat. He said, we're going to win this game. He said it with swearing. He said, sit the F down. We're going to F and win this effing game. By the way, that's how he talks as a manager too, but he won way fewer games as a manager than he did as a backup catcher. I go sit in my seat, and all of a sudden, a little foul ball off the bat of Luis Castillo, no big deal, nothing happening, strike two. Uh, Moises Salud tries to catch it, nothing doing, doesn't catch it, move on. All of a sudden, eight-run eighth inning. We had an eight-run eighth inning. Yada, yada. That was a Seinfeld yada, yada story. 
and the yada yada is the whole difference. What happened? It's the Steve Bartman game. Steve Bartman was a fan at the game in 2003 who got in the way of a foul ball that Moises Alou purportedly could have caught. Here's a tiny little postscript to the Steve Bartman story. Moises Alou told me directly, this is not hearsay, directly in a conversation, there was no chance he ever had to catch that ball. To all of you Cubs fans out there who blame Steve Bartman, to all of you Cubs fans who said, hey, we should have beaten the Marlins that year, and who conveniently forget about the error at shortstop on the ground ball by Cabrera that should have been a double play, who conveniently forget about the fact that Mark Pryor was left in the game too long and that Kyle Farnsworth gave up a huge hit to Mike Mordecai? Mike Mordecai with a bases-clearing double on an absolutely ineffective fastball? Poorly located, but it was Steve Bartman who got in the way of a ball that could never be caught in the first place. People have to realize, please, if you don't mind, that when you blame somebody for something, there is a decent chance that they didn't have everything to do with it. There's a possible chance they didn't have something to do with it. And there's a very tiny chance that they didn't have anything to do with it. So when you're about to lay blame, all I ask you is to do a chart of anything to something to everything and figure out where in fact, in real life, not in your mind, but in real life, where does the blame lay? ML Beard Challenge, Day 5 Cubs. So we do a... Uh, Wait to see, and I usually end the show with the wait to see. I'm not ending it because i got to end it on something else that is bothering me right now, and it's going to require a bit of a longer conversation. So the wait to see is uh, we've talked about the Cubs. I can just tell you this. The, uh, the Cubs are not playing in October. Now, let me be more specific because you're saying to me, wait a minute, what if the regular season is in October? What if they're still playing regular season games and the Cubs are playing in October? And Coca would make me be wrong on the way to see. So Coca, let me be clear. Oh, he did it for me. If you're watching on YouTube, you see it. I wrote, Cubs are not an October team. He wrote, Cubs are not a postseason team. Thank you, Matthew. The Chicago Cubs will not make the postseason during the 2020 season. It doesn't matter if it's an 80-game, 120-game, 140-game, 70-game, 50-game, no-game. There is no chance the Cubs make the postseason. They don't have the roster to do it. The Central Division in the National League is too strong with the Cardinals, with the uh, uh, the team in Milwaukee, the Brewers. You've got the Reds in there. The Cubs have a problem. They just didn't do enough. Okay, so final note. There's something going on today. It's getting a lot of attention, and it's not in the sports world. But it has something to do with sports to me. Do you know that uh, when we're making decisions in sports, we always have inside information? The reason why we can't gamble on sports is we know exactly what's going to happen. We know about injuries before you do. We know about matchups and we know what is going on with our team. If a player is sick or if a player is not well, if a player has an off-field issue, if a, play- if a pitcher is not available... We have ideas before games start, which is why we're not allowed to gamble ever. And if you do, you end up being rosed. 
as in Pete Rose. Well, what happened yesterday is up to four senators were in a meeting. These are United States senators. Remember how many senators there are? That's right, a hundo. Four percent of the United States senators were in a meeting where they were told in advance about coronavirus and about the possibility of the pandemic, if not the probability. There are reports coming out that these four senators then went into their personal accounts and sold off their positions in the stock market before the stock market took a huge crap. And before all of us regular people looked at our 401ks and looked at our accounts and started panicking, delaying retirement for 10 years, or having any amount of money that we thought we had disappear, or if we had no money at all, saying with a recession coming, when are we ever going to have money? But yet these senators somehow decided they were going to sell and cash in before the market went down. They are all now in hide-and-seek mode, except a senator from Georgia got on and did a live interview. I'm going to mispronounce her name. I want to say Laufler, but I'm probably going to have it wrong. She made a profit, in theory, by selling stocks, but then she got on the camera and said, I had no idea. I don't know anything about any trades or investments that go on with me. I didn't know I'd sold until until you told me, until a week later. It's in a trust. It's in a blind trust. Are you telling me that there's any credibility to the fact that it's a complete coincidence? And if it is a coincidence, why not look to see how it looks and give the profits back? Why not donate the profits you've made? You can't unwind the trades but you can definitely donate the profits. The look of it is so bad during this time when people are struggling so mightily to flaunt on your Instagram or to flaunt the fact that you're making money or living this great luxurious life while in quarantine. When you're a senator and your husband is the president of the damn New York Stock Exchange, you think that's not gonna be a bad look when you sell all your stocks and then the market crashes? I would much rather have her taken the microphone, looked right at that person interviewing her on CNBC or Fox Business or CNN, wherever it was, take the microphone, look right into the camera and say right to the American people, hey, I'm a senator. It's just business. It's nothing personal. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.